Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. Today, I speak with Spencer Feldman about detoxification. Now, on my health journey, I've tried a lot of detox products, and some of them have been really useful, and some of them not so much, maybe even harmful. I've probably got in my own way a few times along the journey. Now, what we talk about today is going to be not medical advice. Let me make that clear. I am not a doctor. And if you feel like you have something in your body that needs detoxing, um, I do recommend working with someone that is skilled at guiding people along that journey. So uh, seek a medical professional to do so. But uh, I also am a proponent of tinkering around, trying things and practicing listening to your body and seeing what works and what doesn't. That being said, Spencer is involved with creating a lot of products that help people get stuff that's inside the body that you want out, out, and seems to have a lot of experience about that. And I'm always looking to learn more about detoxification because from what I understand, uh, it's kind of an uphill battle. I think our environment has a big burden that it puts on us, whether it's through our food supply or our air quality or water quality and all kinds of environmental stuff. So I think it's important to shine a light on the idea and be mindful as when we're figuring out how to take care of ourselves. So um, thank again for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm here with Spencer Feldman, the founder of Remedy Link. Spencer, thanks for joining me on the Mindful Movement Podcast. Thanks for having me, Les. You seem to know a lot about detoxification. I've been paying attention to just the world of fitness and wellness for quite some time now. And detox is a word that gets thrown around a lot. And Mm -hmm. I'm definitely guilty of being a guinea pig and trying different detox fads and such. And 
for a while, I don't think I knew anything really about it. I would just try things, which rarely worked well. Um, and then as I get older, I'm trying to learn a little bit more and have a, a more um, appropriate understanding of what I'm actually trying to do when I'm uh, interacting with my body in terms of detoxification. I was hoping we could start off with you teaching us, kind of zooming out in the macro level, like what detox really refers to in the body, uh, not from like a celery juice fad standpoint or whatever, like what's actually happening in the body when our body's trying to get rid of said toxins? Sure. So our body has a natural capacity to detoxify uh, for the things that we were evolutionarily exposed to, you know, spider bite, arsenic, and some and a well water, so forth and so on. But with modern industry and the chemical uh, revolutions, uh, and we are exposed to a lot more than our body has a capacity to deal with. And so it behooves us to uh, learn the ins and outs, at least the basics of what detox is. And it's a great question. So what is it? If a toxin, uh, if a toxin is water soluble, it does its damage and then it leaves within a day. You just urinate it out. If a toxin is fat soluble though, well, there's a lot of fat in the body. All the membranes are made out of lipids or, you know, so when a fat, when a toxin's fat soluble, it can get in and bind to the fat and then you can't just wash it away. And to uh, illustrate this, imagine that you have a dish with some grease on it. And if you uh, dunk that dish in some water and pull the dish out, the grease is still going to be there. But if you have add a few drops of soap to the dish water and drop the dish in and shake it around a little bit, and a lot of that grease is going to come off. What's happened is the soap uh, engages in a chemical reaction with the grease, making the grease water soluble. And now the water can rinse it away and it goes down your sink. In essence, detox is take making fat soluble toxins water soluble if it's water soluble in the first place you don't need help there's just the damage it does that you have to repair from when it's fat soluble that's when detox comes in so the question as someone who's doing detox is what are the soaps i need for the various types of toxins fat soluble toxins i've been exposed to um, and to make it easy you don't really have to master this there are broadly speaking two classes of three classes of toxins works where we, we deal with um the first would be metals and i break that into four different categories so we have the simple metals and if you are watching this on youtube uh, open up in another window the periodic table of elements so you can kind of go along with me as i as i'm pointing or I'm illustrating this so the basic metals, as I would call them, would be things like aluminum, arsenic, cadmium, barium, lead. Uh, and the soap, the thing that will render it soluble, is there are a number of things you can use. I like using EDTA, ethylene diamine tetracetic acid, which is a fancy name for something with four vinegar groups on it. Tetras for acetic acids vinegar. And it's the acids that combine to these things now. Uh, it's um, some people believe that acids are bad for the body. Um, that's not true. Uh, stomach acid is necessary, right? So the issue with acids is there are you want the right amount and the right type of acids. 
Some assets aren't good for us. I mean, we don't want to be over acidic, but some assets are good for us. So when you exercise, you make lactic acid and that will remove toxins. When you eat an apple, you're getting malic acid. When you drink lemon juice, you're getting citric acid. And all those are chelators or things that can remove metals. But uh, in the 21st century, we are exposed to so many metals that we need something a little stronger, unfortunately, than when we can get out of nature. And that's where EDTA comes in. And that can bind to those simple metals. So that's the first class of metals. Is there, the second, I, yes. I'm sorry, can I stop you there? So is there a natural way that our body gets rid of these that doesn't come from our food or from EDTA? Do, we don't make EDTA in the body, do we? No, it's made in a lab. So what's the natural method that we would excrete a metal toxin from? So the body uh, does have a chelating capacity. Glutathione and certain conjugating elements can remove metals. Certain acids in your body can remove metals. There, we do have a limited capacity to remove metals. We are grossly outmatched uh, in terms of what our body can do and what some of us are exposed to. So doing it naturally, unfortunately, it's just these are orders of magnitude. We're not, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, a lovely idea and not practical. Gotcha. Today's world. Uh, it's very rare you find someone that has no metal exposure. They've never had mercury in their mouth. They haven't eaten a lot of predatory fish, so forth and so on. So the first class are the simple metals, and I like EDTA for that. Does then, sweat, I'm sorry, one more question about that. Does I've heard that sweating can remove some metals. Do you know if there's any truth to that? So what metals do is they look like things we need. So cat, uh, cadmium looks like zinc, so it goes in the prostate. Cal, uh, lead looks like calcium, so it goes in the bones. Some mercury looks like selenium. You'll see it in the thyroid. Aluminum, like magnesium, we'll see it get up in the brain. So it, it's these things can get in there and hold on pretty tightly. Um, they, re, they displace the metals that we need nutritionally, so they're actually part of us. And they can also get stuck on what are called the mineral transporters. So every cell has all of these little ports in them. Some of them are like revolving doors. Some of them are like pumps. Some, you know, but there are ways of bringing things in and out. And the metals will go in there because they're the right size to the things we need, but there are different uh, electric charge. And so they can get stuck in the transporters. And that's the equivalent of someone coming to your house and crazy gluing your refrigerator door down and your toilet seat down. Now you can't eat and you can't go to the bathroom. That house is unlivable very quickly. So metals can end up making it so we can't get nutrition in, we can't get toxins out, among other things. It also causes proteins in the brain to misfold and we can get there at some point. That's the cause of most neurologic problems. So trying to get them out of the body with sweating, I think that's better for the chemical side of things. And the challenge with sweating or any of these mobilization techniques is you don't, you can end up moving them around, right? If the body has taken a toxic metal or chemical and put it someplace like the fat to keep it away from the brain or internal organs, um, and you sweat, and you mobilize it, if there's nothing there to bind to it, some of it can come out, but some of it can also get redistributed to a worse location like the brain. So 
you if you want to do these techniques like sweating and so forth great but understand that they should also be done at the same time as you use something that sequesters and binds and chelates the toxin i think i've been guilty in the past when i uh before i got healthier really and i was probably just generally more toxic um of being like really aggressive trying to get them out thinking if some out something worked then more should work more and experience that like you're moving them around but you're not necessarily getting them out as fast as you're like dislodging them from wherever they are and feeling really really worse um and going through some nasty growing pains in that process which i would assume is common i think i remember a doctor telling me that your genetics could have a big impact of that like some people are just generally more or less efficient genetically of moving things out. So if you're not great at getting rid of them and you stir the pot, you could feel pretty gross before you feel better. Yeah, there's a lot of traps and pitfalls in the detox protocols that are out there. So for instance, um, if someone is genetically different, maybe they don't methylate well, and or they have compromised pathways like their kidney function's not great, then yes, if you mobilize something inappropriately, it can stay around longer and go to the wrong location. There's two ways that that can happen. The first is the wrong chelator is used or the wrong detoxifier is used. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain this in terms of, uh, for instance, the fourth class of metals uh, that I, I pull out. And that's the things like the gadolidium, the uranium, which is actually not that rare. A lot of people have it in their well water. Uh, that's where radon comes from. So, uh, for instance, when we're talking about detoxifying certain metals, um, there are two ways to go about it. There's two types of chelators. One is linear. That's like wrapping a ribbon around it. And one is macrocylic. That's like grabbing it with claws. Now, uh, the one where you grab it with a claw makes a much better bond to it. So you're much less likely to have it fall off. But again, it has to be a big enough claw to wrap completely around it. Uh, we have a product called Captamet that uses something called DOTA, which is the big brother version of EDTA, which has eight coordinate bonds. So it's a large enough to wrap around these really large metals. Now, if someone tries to chelate a metal with the wrong chelator and they kind of, you know, imagine you, you, if you grabbed onto um, uh, um, a baseball with your hand, you're going to make a pretty long, strong grip and it's not going to come out unless you let, you let your, unless you let your hand open up. But if you try to grab a basketball with your hand, it can get knocked out of your hand. Your hand's not big enough. That's the wrong thing to grab onto a basketball with, right? You need it. So you would need something bigger to grab that basketball. So if someone tries to get rid of a metal uh, or even a chemical, but in this case, a metal with something that doesn't fully wrap, wrap around it, two things happen. One, it can get knocked off in the process of trying to remove it. And now you might've taken something that was sequestered in the abdominal fat for safety reasons by the body, you mobilize it and then it lets go and it goes to the brain and now you've got a worse problem. Uh, the other thing is a, toxic, a toxin that is water soluble is still toxic. It's still toxic on the way out. So unless the, the more you sequester it, the less toxic it becomes so that if you have something that's only half grabbing it, even if it takes it out the kidneys, that part that's still open is ripping the kidneys up on the way out. So you can go aggressively if you have the right chelator, but better to go at a rate that your kidneys can handle 
but most importantly, make sure that what you're using doesn't let it go, or doesn't release it again. And that's what happened for you. That's one of the types of detox traps that people can fall into. And there are others. Gotcha. I've heard uh, the, you know, phases referred to, and I think I got a grip of the phase two that happens at the liver, which these fat soluble toxins are conjugated to be made water soluble. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've heard a, an uh, explanation that I've at least that I've understood what happens before that. So uh, can you talk on the beginning of phase one, what's the first thing that happens and what's the uh, importance of that leading to the next phase? Sure. So, so far we've been talking about metal toxins and chelators for those. The way in which chemicals come out, it's a different method. Okay. It's actually a two-step. There's two soaps, right? So if chelators is a one soap the metal, for metals, for chemicals, it's a two-step process. Uh, and many of you may listening to this may be familiar with what has been used for the first part, phase one, which is a coffee enema, which is where you take coffee and you take it rectally as a retention enema. And the coffee stimulates phase one. Phase one is something technically called cytochrome P450 enzymes. And what it does is it takes the chemical toxin and it either adds on or unmasks a polar group. So basically it either adds a grappling hook to the chemical or makes available a grappling hook that was there but wasn't able to be used. Now, in that split second, that chemical is much more reactive. And in a healthy person, a microsecond, literally a millionth of a second later, a conjugating element will attach to the grappling hook. And that could be glutathione, but it could also be sulfur or methyl groups or um, certain amino acids or glucuronic acid. There's a number of things that the body can use depending on the nature of the chemical and the grappling hook to then make it water soluble and then you urinate it out. Now, what can happen is there are people who don't have the phase two. Phase two is when you add the conjugating agent and they don't do phase two very well because they've burnt that pathway out with the toxins they've been exposed to. So let's say you're in an, uh, let's say someone, you're in an elevator with a friend who's multiple chemical sensitivities and a third person comes in with way too much cologne. Now you can smell the cologne and it's, you know, it's a little overbearing, but you know, fine, whatever. That's because in your body, phase one, put the grappling hook on the cologne inside your bloodstream, inside your body. And then the conjugating agent phase two came along. And then sometime that evening, phase three will escort it out the urine or out the feces. So wait, that happens that fast, the phase one. So if you breathe in cologne, you're, you're basically breathing in a chemical but the phase one is done at the liver. Does that go from the nose to the liver that fast? These, these things happen pretty darn quick. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, now, another reason someone can react quickly is because they're actually uh, having a histamine response to it. And we can talk about histamine detox too. So now the chemically sensitive friend who's there with you, their phase one kicks in and they put on the little grappling hooks onto the cologne, but they don't have any phase two left. They've burnt it all out. So now the chemical is actually more toxic in them than when it started because it's more reactive. Now the grappling hook can attach to all sorts of things. And so these people become, take toxins and make them worse in their bodies. And this is another detox trap where someone does, is using a detox product that hasn't been properly formulated and doesn't take into consideration that you need to support phase one and phase two at the same time. We have a product called Xenoplex. It's got both of those in there. 
Um, and that's what we use with our um, to support people who have multiple chemical sensitivities. So another trap that can happen in the detox world is someone takes a product that makes them sicker and they think, oh, I'm just having a healing crisis or maybe their practitioner says, stay with it, You'll, you know, you're just detoxing. If you have a reaction to a detox product, you first off, you shouldn't have a bad reaction. Most of us, 99% of us won't. It'll just be a good reaction if it's a good product. 1% of us are so toxic and so compromised that even the best detox product is still going to be a little uncomfortable as the stuff leaves. But the, the, the takeaway is each day you take it should be less and less problematic. So the first time you take it, if it's hard, take it one more day. If it's only 80% as hard the next day, good, take it again. And then it's 60% and 40, and then by the end of the week, you're, you're feeling better. That's your indication that your detox protocol is working. If you're taking something and every time you take it, you feel bad and or worse, then that product protocol was not properly designed for you or may actually be full of toxins. As an example, someone might take zeolite uh, or chlorella to detoxify themselves. Well, zeolite's not made in a lab, it comes out of the ground and that's where all the toxic metals are. So unless the zeolite you get has been acid washed first, then you may end up pulling, uh, gaining metal toxins from the zeolite. And then if your practitioner says, wow, look at all these metals coming out in your urine. No, those are the metals the zeolite was dumping as it hit your stomach acid. Same for chlorella. If the chlorella was harvested off the coast of China or Fukushima or something, then it's going to be full of toxins. So um, a detox should only make you better, or if it makes you feel worse, it's diminishing worse each time for maybe a couple of days a week at most. Other than that, you're probably not using the right chelator or the right detox, uh, chemical detox, or it's actually toxic on its own. Where, where do you think the majority of the toxins that we have to deal with are, are coming from? Like what's the oh, most common all thing over that the we, place. all over? All over the place. I mean, mercury fillings and fish are a big one for mercury. Um, where people work, you know, if they're working around metals or chemicals, if they live or work near a major road, they're breathing in particulate matter. Uh, if they are you drinking- mean just from like the car exhaust? The car exhaust, sure. City water is um, chalk. Well, a lot of municipal waters are recycled urine. And so Ooh, they don't really? have the ability, yeah, uh, they recycle it from the sewage system. So they, uh, you know, the, the, the way in which water is treated is they use flocculating agents. They put something in there to make stuff kind of coagulate and drop down. And that's problematic for two reasons. One, um, when you take flocculating agents into your body as, as a liquid, it flocculates your bloodstream and causes your blood to clot. That's not good. And the second is not all things are going to flocculate. So there's a lot of things, you know, um, the antidepressants and the, the hormones and the cancer drugs that, that people are urinating out are getting reabsorbed by, you know, from the tap water. So people are getting it from tap water and shower water. Um, it's, it, I'm always astounded. Even well water can be loaded full of uranium. So, you know, it's a bit of... Um, so this is like a, a bit an of uphill a, battle. Um, it's not something we could ever truly avoid. So it's important to... If we want to play like a bigger role in our sense of well-being, we just need to integrate into our lifestyle, like um, 
mitigation, like reduction of the intake and just support mm-hmm. our ability to be moving these out at a, at a, at a healthy way that's healthy for us. For the well, I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example, right? There was a fellow I've been counseling recently who his teeth were falling, were, were disintegrating, among other problems he was having. And I'm 50, 55, his teeth disintegrating. I've only seen that with radioact- radioactive toxins. And uh, it turns out he'd been working with thorated tungsten. Now, thorium will displace calcium. So there it is. It gets in the teeth and the teeth dissolve. And he got that, you know, from his, his workplace. Um, so sure, there, it, it's important to understand where the source is coming from. If this guy had kept working there, you know, it would have been, it would have been, you know, bailing out a sinking ship, right? Um, but on the other hand, you, when you go and get your oil changed, you don't say, "Hey, before I spend the hundred dollars on my oil change, can I spend three hundred dollars getting an oil analysis?" Because it's you know that after six months, your oil needs to be changed in your car, so you can fairly well assume that. There's some degree of metal and toxic load in your body. Uh, and it's a good maintenance thing just to try to stay on top of it. Now, some people who have really excessive toxicity, yeah, we need to figure out what's going on. Is it their well water? Is it you know the industry that they're working in? Or was it some previous experience that a one-time exposure that it's not going to repeat? But for most of the people listening to this, there's just this continual backlog of toxins that build up because they we accumulate them faster than we can get rid of them and at a certain point in time the body just starts getting overwhelmed with them and starts having issues so yeah uh, we need to work in a kind of maintenance detox to our lives and even if that's just once a year where you just do you know some detoxes yeah i think i've heard like ayurvedic practitioners talk about how it was in the culture like i don't know if it was seasonally or quarterly that there would be uh, practices that were just part of the lifestyle that, uh, you know, didn't let you go too far of a run without cleaning out something. Yeah. Pancha karma. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, um, which makes me think like how much of this comes from food. I've heard a lot of people we've, uh, talk about, we've had Paul Saladino on recently, you know, there's some people out there that have educated the public a lot on some of the toxins that we did we generally don't expect to encounter that come in food supply, especially through the plant kingdom. So I understand that a lot of plants carry with them their own toxins, which maybe at some dose could be potentially therapeutic or even medicinal. But I guess all those, do all those toxins that are just in, let's say, Brussels sprouts, do they all have to go through this phase one, phase two, and then excrete it out through the stool or the urine? It really depends on the nature of the chemical. And I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Um, in the early part of the 20th century during the Great Depression, some think tank people got together and said, how are we going to feed all the starving poor people? And they said, well, you know, spinach is really nutritious, but nobody wants to eat it. Let's come up with a PR campaign for spinach. And that's Popeye the Sailor Man. And they were well-meaning, but what they didn't understand is that spinach is loaded with oxalic acid and causes oxalates to crystallize in the body and create kidney stones and pain in the joints and all sorts of other problems. So there are plant toxins that are acceptable at the levels that, you know, um, that we would eat them at. Uh, And then there's plant toxins that are useful to us. 
Those would be some of the bitters and essential oils I can talk to you in about in a second. And then there's plant toxins that are from things that are fad foods that we really shouldn't be eating. We shouldn't be eating spinach um, unless you do what the, they do in India, which is you mix it um, with cheese and then the calcium from the cheese bonds to the oxalic acid and the spinach and makes calcium oxalate crystals, which hopefully aren't absorbed in the intestine. Uh, so we've walked away from some of this um, ancestral wisdom about what foods are good for us, what aren't. And we eat these fad foods like tofu and chia seeds and things that just really don't belong in the human diet for various reasons. I mean, we, you know, we could do a whole talk on lectins and anti-nutrients and so forth. But let me give you an example about, you know, the good side of toxins in plants. So um, have you ever had a crab apple? I've only thrown them as a kid. <laughs> okay. So, um, and I did watch Popeye, by the way, yeah. as a young child. I remember watching that. That was like one of the, I don't know, Saturday morning cartoons I watched. So you're saying that was, that show is like propaganda? Well, it was well meaning propaganda. They weren't trying to manipulate, you know. Like they things. didn't know the harms of it. They I don't think know the so. harms of the spin. Okay. They meant well. They meant well. <laughs> so, 2000 years ago, um, grapes and, and apples were very bitter. Right, an apple was a crab apple. Grapes were very bitter, um, and they weren't as sweet. Right, but we have uh, we like sweet foods, and we prefer not to eat bitter foods. So, two thousand years of selective breeding, and now we have these things that are quite different. Our food, our, our fruits and vegetables are very sweet, which leads to um, you know diabetes and a hyperactivity of the growth of bacteria and things. Uh, and they're very not, don't have very much bitter elements to them. Now, the bitters are the medicinal side of things. Yes, they're toxic, but they're toxic more to the bugs than they are to us if you get the right kind of bitters, right? So um, what bitters do is they interfere with what's called quorum sensing. Now, when bacteria and fungi uh, are growing in the biofilm in the body, they act as a superorganism and they communicate to each other and they all take a vote about what they should do. Should we grow? Should we shrink? Should we colonize? Should we go to sleep? And they do this by kind of creating chemicals and then tasting the chemicals around them. And then based on the type and the number, they all make a decision. Uh, you can use bitters to interfere with that process and throw them out of whack, like uh, throw them off. So eating bitters is actually a good thing. And you know, the whole sweetest bitters phenomena where you know people recognize bitters were medicine. Spoonful now, you of see bitters often in um, like tinctures. Do you think, so when you take a bitter in a, tincture is that like uh have the essence of what you need without as much of the like the toxic material or do you think it's better to actually like cook a bitter green or make a tea out of it okay so um i have a product called zoibin where we picked we made, we chose some bitters and essential oils and i'll tell you about the essential oil part in a second um it depends what bitters you use right? Um, not every bitter thing is good. Some bitter things are deadly poisonous. Some bitter things are psychoactive. Some bitter things are medicinal. So uh, I chose gentian and berberine, which are two most bitter things known to man. And they're also quite good for you in the mix I made. Um, and then the other thing is, in addition to not getting bitters, we also don't get essential oils. Now I see that you probably get essential oils in your diet because of all the greens I'm seeing in the background. You're growing a lot of stuff. Now, if you're growing any medicinal herbs there, if or just spices, if you grow oregano or rosemary, um, you know that fresh spices taste very different from stuff in a store that's been irradiated 
and oxidized and sat in a bottle for six months before you got it. Unless you pick your uh, spices fresh from a, um, a raised bed outside your kitchen garden, uh, kitchen window, there's no essential oils left. Now, essential oils are how plants defend themselves against the same things we have to deal with. It's how they defend themselves against cancer and viruses and fungus and parasites and bacteria. And it helps break down the biofilm so that the body can get in to go after these infections. So, you know, we know we don't eat bitters and we don't eat essential oils anymore. So I made a product that's got like five edible essential oils out of the hundreds and hundreds that are out there. There's only a few you can actually eat that are that are uh, that won't hurt you. Uh, and then uh, two of the bitters. And then the idea is we're recreating what you would be eating in ancient Greece, right? Or, uh, you know, 2000 years ago, that would be part of your diet. So yes, not all bitters are, you know, plants, it takes some sophistication to understand plants because there are things you want that you're not getting and things that you get that you don't want. Where did you learn about the plants and like the, the different essential oils and different bitters? Well, um, sure. So it's what I did with the, once I formulated the idea uh, that I wanted to get bitters and essential oils back in my diet, for the essential oils, I bought the textbook of essential oils, which is like 500 page book. And I went through every single essential oil that was available to man. And I, anytime I saw something that was mutagenic or tetragenic or, you know, hepatotoxic or caused any kind of problem, you know, put a mark through it. And what, what's tetragenic? What is that? Uh, I believe tetragenic is, uh, it's going to cause problems with the, um, the fetus, if I recall. Okay. Uh, I could be wrong. It's been a while. So the, <laughs> okay. yeah. So, you know, after a few days of going through that book, I, I was like, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, am I going to find anything in here? Right. And I found like four or five of them that actually you could take without having long-term sensitivities that were actually good for you and, and were generally recognized as safe. Um, and then, so the same for the bitters, right? You look up online, what are all the bitters? Look at all the bitter me medicines that are out there and which are the ones have the least or no side effects. And it was berberine and gentian were the ones I picked. So the so I've heard that bitters stimulate, uh, is it, I don't know if it's bile production or the movement of the bile from the gallbladder. I assume that the bile is one of the soaps that you were gonna, or detergents, whatever that you, you were mentioning um, or alluded to earlier. Um, there's a relationship there though, right? Between the bitters and bile somehow. Yeah, so we actually have bitter receptors all throughout our body, not just our mouth. So bitters play a very ancient and powerful role in our metabolism and our homeostasis. To remove bitters from our diet is um, changing the way in which we've evolved and what our body's expecting, right? So we use bitter substances and we pull them and bring them in all sorts of places. But one of the things indeed is it will stimulate bile and bile is there to uh, stimulate peristalsis. It kills parasites. It um, regulates the gut microbiome. Uh, it helps emulsifies fats. And here's something else that bile does. Uh, in a healthy person, a little bit of bile will get in the bloodstream and it will solubilize the toxic fats in the arteries. So it's a natural arterial cleanse. Uh, so there's two things that we do regarding bile. Uh, have you ever heard of a liver gallbladder flush? Uh, yeah, like with the um, malic acid and the Epsom salt, or I don't sure. know how it all works, but yeah. 
I've heard. Okay. There's like a bajillion videos on YouTube if you are searching detox stuff. Yeah. So a liver gallbladder flush, basically uh, what it is, is you're taking, you know, an enormous amount of olive oil uh, along with um, Epsom salt and the olive and some kind of acid. The acid uh, will hopefully soften some of these stones. A lot of us are walking, if you do an ultrasound of a hundred people in their gallbladder, you're going to see stones and sludge in a number of people. It happens. So what happens is, you know, you, you kind of pre- you prepare the stones by softening them up with apple cider vinegar or phosphoric acid or something. And then you're gonna drink the apple cider, uh, the olive oil and the Epsom salt. The olive oil causes the gallbladder to spasm, try to dump all of its bile to deal with the oncoming oil. And the Epsom salt uh, dilates the sphincter of odi, which is this uh, circular ring muscle at the base of the gallbladder to open it up. So you can do this, um, a couple of issues with it. One, because you're squeezing and pushing so hard, you could end up jamming a gallstone into the pancreatic duct or jamming some stones in a way where you end up pushing bile and backwashing it into the pancreas and, and causing pancreatitis and burning up the pancreas. So it's a very dramatic thing um, and it has some, has some challenges. The other is if you know some people are told, well, keep doing this until you stop getting stones out of you. Well, if some, you know, and then you'll hear people saying, I've done it 20 times, I'm still getting stones. No, no, you're not. No. What you're getting after the first or second time uh, is artifact created by the olive oil interacting with the bile, making little green kind of soapstones. And if you grab them, you'll squeeze them. You'll see they're not hard. They're kind of they're just olive oil. And so people get it thinking, I have to keep doing this because I'm still getting stones out. And this is another detox trap because what they're doing is each time they do that, they're flushing all the bile out of their body. Now, Bile is very important to the body, which is why we recycle 95% of it. But if you dump it all out, you can't recycle it as well. It's too much for the recycling system. And what happens is the liver runs out of bile and gets very dry. And then that sets a person up for gallstones and bile sludge. So it's a self-creating problem. So that's another trap. What I prefer to do with the bile, we have a product called Glitamins, which is our remake of the liver gallbladder flush. And so, no, it doesn't happen in a day. It takes 10 days. Um, but the idea is to melt gallstones and then they just pass away naturally. And unless you happen to inspect your stool, you're just, uh, to see them coming out, you just don't even notice it. Uh, I think that's a, a gentler, and I also believe more effective way to do it because we're also working at, in the liver. Not all gallstones are in the gallbladder. They are also in the liver. So I guess you'd call them liver stones. So that's one aspect of dealing um, with with bile and the other uh, as i said is you can actually take bile iv uh, 75 80 years ago the germans uh, created something called plaque x which was bile and phosphatidylcholine that they would do iv to flush out the arteries well um, we made uh, a version of that uh, as a uh, liposomal and you can take it and then the bile goes if you can get bile into your bloodstream as it's supposed to go then that as i said before is a great natural way to clean out the arteries and that is supposed to go into the bloodstream through the small intestines as it's working its way down right so at the bottom of the small intestines some of that bile is reabsorbed into the liver now i don't know the exact pathway by which the bile gets into the bloodstream but when it does in very small amounts it's a, a soap quote unquote for the toxic fats in the arteries and, and let me explain how that happens um 
Are you familiar with something called Crisco? Uh, yeah, it's like right, so, cooking fat or something. Right, right. So um, they came up, this was someone just figured out that if they took cheap cottonseed oil and they um, and inter interacted it with um, nickel and hydrogen, which are both metals, indeed hydrogen gas is a metal, that it would hydrogenate the cottonseed oil and turn it solid. And that was Crisco. And it was very popular among Jewish folk because uh, it allowed them to fry food and still follow kosher laws because you, you're not allowed to mix dairy and meat if you're following kosher law. And so you couldn't fry with butter. And so Crisco became a staple in a lot of houses, a lot of homes, you know, last century, even today. But it's true. It's horrible for you. It's a, it's a toxic fat. But what a lot of people don't realize is it's not just enough not to eat toxic hydrogenated fats. You also don't want to make them internally. So remember, that fat was turned into Crisco, that oil turned into Crisco because it interacted with metals, nickel and hydrogen. Well, if someone's got a lot of metal toxicity in their body, their arteries will turn into Crisco. And so we have to not just remove that stuff out of the body, but you have to get rid of why it happened in the first place, which was a usually in metal toxicity. I want to back up. I, I know I already asked the question about this, but I, I just want to understand a little clear with the, the bitters. Um, so the, because we make bile to deal with fat, but bitters, when I think of bitters, I think of like leaves, plant things that I wouldn't mm -hmm. consider to be high in fat. Why, why do we... Why does a bitter stimulate bile? Do you know? Like That's a great question. I don't know. But I can tell you that there are bitter receptors all throughout the body. And if you're eating, okay, so if you look at hunter-gatherers, um, there's a, a, a mistaken idea that they're all carnivore. And typically, no. Uh, for instance, the Hadza of Tanzania are successful on about one out of three hunts. So they're eating mostly plant matter, and then they feast on meat. And so the, the men go out hunting for the meat, and then they also do the risky thing of getting honey. Uh, and then the women are out there like, you know, going and getting the, the tubers and then pounding them uh, and then preparing them. So most human food, you know, most of what you eat historically uh, is plant matter. And then uh, you could say that the, the first kind of cultivated plant we did were beans, if you want to look historically. I don't know if it was uh, pulses or chickpeas in the, in the Fertile Crescent. But um, so that was like the first crop we did. And, uh, and so we started doing those. So and the thing I like about beans is they're very high in the leucosaccharides and very low glycemic index. And we can talk about how that affects the gut as well. So if you are eating paleolithically, which I think is a goal, then it's a lot of plants. And just keep in mind, you know, the, when you go to the supermarket and get a carrot and get an apple, that's not what it was like 2000 years ago, all, you know, it, it was much more bitter. So just by default, you were eating bitters nonstop. Hmm. And you said the, so a product where you put bitters and essential oils together, that's like a, a two punch thing where you have the, the bitters to get the bile moving. And then the essential oils are like antimicrobial. Well, originally, right, I didn't make it for any particular purpose initially, other than I wanted to recreate a Paleolithic diet oh. with that. And, and I knew that even if I went to the store and tried to eat what was what was they were eating, that the plants themselves had changed. Right. And after I did that, 
and I made this product without, you know, I, and I, I understood to a degree what bitters and essential oils should do, but I learned a lot in the, you know, over the years of having it and people telling me what was happening for them. Uh, so I've actually, you know, learned more from people telling me, hey, I was using the Zoibin and this and that happened. I've learned as much from that as I did from the initial research of what I thought it should do. So there were a lot of um, pleasant surprises that came in from actually recreating an early Paleolithic diet. There's one other thing that I um, went along with in terms of that, and that also is there's a, um, in your microbiome, you know, the gut bacteria, which is, um, you know, a lot of people think the gut's your second brain. It's actually your first brain. It was here before the brain. It was here, all the, all the heart and the brain and the, all these other organs are specialized organs that were originally handled by the microbiome. Uh, the bacteria, you know, and the gut is this one long tube that was doing everything. Uh, and then we specialized out. So the way in which it's supposed to work is um, when you eat sugars, right? The simple sugars you digest, that's like the fruit and honey, and the complex sugars like the carbs you digest with enzymes. But there are these middle-sized sugars called oligosaccharides that we don't have the enzymes to break down, but they're in the food. That's what all the bacteria in your gut eat. They eat the oligosaccharides. That's also known as prebiotics. And when you eat these, they thrive and they do a new, I mean, we talk for hours just in the microbiome. It starts off with regulating uh, or um, inside the womb, the mother's microbiome generates short-chain fatty acids that uh, modify the architecture of the brain of the fetus to make us human, to give us our intelligence. We are as smart as we are in part by the, due to the microbiome of the mother. And then it goes on and it educates our immune system. Uh, if we weren't for the microbiome, it, we, our immune system would have a very difficult time knowing self from other and being able to unmask um, uh, stealth bacteria. The microbiome is responsible for regulating your blood sugar, your hormones, your neurotransmitters, your immune system. It, it runs the whole show. And really all the microbiome, and the reason it's doing that is because we have evolved this symbiotic relationship over all this time. And every, you know, a microbiome that helps you heal faster and reproduce more successfully and live longer allows the microbiome to be more healthy. So it's, it, it the healthier and better we get, the better it is for it. It's a symbiotic relationship. So the microbiome is the most is our most ancient and powerful ally, and all it's asking is the leftovers of the food we don't we can't digest. Problem is we don't eat food that has those those oligosaccharides in it as much. We're not eating that Paleolithic diet. So what I did is I said, okay, I got the bitters and the essential oils dialed in. How did Paleolithic men and women what kind of what kind of prebiotics were they eating? They were eating a lot of tubers, they ate some beans, they ate a lot of raw meat, they ate mushrooms and shellfish and insects. And so I looked at the, the oligosaccharides that a Paleolithic person I believed would be eating from what I could research. And we made a product called Panaceum that has all those prebiotics, all those oligosaccharides in the ratio I think it's appropriate. Now, what you'll see people are doing is if they'll go out and get prebiotics and good for them, but a lot of them have one or two prebiotics in them, the cheap ones, in massive amounts. And what that can do is throw off the bacterial count in your gut because now you're, you're feeding one species of bacteria, but not another. So that's whole other realm of 
you know, improving health is realizing that there is, you have this guardian angel in your gut. And if you will just feed it a little bit, it will do so many things for you. It's mind blowing. Spencer, it seems like uh, some people do really well as they add like fibrous foods to their diet. And then some people do worse when they do that. And it seems like they thrive more on reduced fiber. Do you have any thoughts or insights why somebody would feel like they benefit when they reduce the fiber? Is that just because they have like a dysbiotic mix? And if you, if the microbiome is not like in a good balance and you just feed it, it, it just grows bigger, but it's still out of balance. Like why sure, do some people reader. do better and some people seem to regress when they try that strategy? There's a couple of reasons for that. Les. Um, one is if someone's taking psyllium, um, unless it's organic, psyllium is heavily loaded with pesticides because it's in some kind of loophole uh, for like animal feed or whatever, where they don't, where they can dump much more pesticides onto the psyllium than they can in the normal food supply. So the psyllium itself can be toxic. Secondly, psyllium is not a prebiotic, realistically, so much. Um, it's going to generate an awful lot of methane. And in some people, it, uh, the, the, the roughage is very irritating to the gut. So some people think that, that fiber is you know, going to feed the gut. It's not so much going to feed the gut, or certainly not the parts of the gut you want, unless you want a lot of methane and hydrogen production, uh, which will then paralyze the gut. Um, what it does is it gives bulk. Um, the way I like to get fiber is through beans. And the beans I like are azuki beans. I soak them and rinse them for a day to get out the anti-nutrients, and then I slow cook them. And there's a, a, a ratio of, like if you look, the, the Hudza were doing something like 100 grams of fiber a day, but they were also doing an enormous amount of physical exercise. And when I did I, the calculation- Can I push back on that? Because I heard, I talked to somebody that went and stayed with them and mentioned that we're told that they eat 100 grams a day. And what he said is they don't actually do that, that they chew on roots. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much fiber they're getting out of that. Maybe they do get some, but they're getting the water, the vitamins, the minerals, and the sugars out of it. And then they spit out the fibrous material. Have you heard about that? I haven't. And it's a very interesting point. And so maybe those numbers are off. And what they're spitting out would be the uh, insoluble fibers, not the soluble fibers. The soluble fibers are going to get mixed with their saliva and it's going to go right in them. So is the oligo oligosaccharide, did I say that right? Oligosaccharides. Are those soluble fibers? They're sugars. They're sugars. Okay. So that's not fiber. You said it's prebiotic, but it's not you fiber. Could, you, could, or... you could argue that anything that is not digestible is a fiber. Gotcha. You can make that argument. Anything uh, that we don't take in... And then it becomes part of us. Anything that passes through, essentially. To make it right, to make it more clear, I would say fiber is the insoluble roughage that goes out, and the insoluble and the soluble stuff that breaks down. I, you you could call that a prebiotic. Gotcha. It, okay. it may not be a prebiotic you want. So, granted, at least we know at least that if even if they are spitting out half of it, they're still getting much more than they are. Right. Gotcha. So if you were to look at the diet, um, I, I kind of aim towards the diet of early, uh, of late Paleolithic when right after beans were in, uh, cultivated. But why, so that's why, do you, why do you aim to that? Uh, this is an interesting question. Um, 
why pick that period? Like, mm-hmm. if you're going back, why not mm-hmm. go back farther? Mm-hmm. Or not sure. as far? Like, why pick that period? Was that the period that we were all just like lean and like the best health? Like, do we do we know? Like, why yeah. not go back farther? Because I don't want to spend two hours a day chewing tubers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? So if you go back farther, you're chewing tubers all day long. And if you go uh, more recent, you're getting high glycemic grains. And so to me, beans were that sweet spot in our okay. dietary evolutionary experience where we, we're, we're not chewing tubers, but we're not blowing our So pancreas. that's the framework. You're looking for like, what's the, the balance that makes yeah. sense to you? Because I've heard yeah. some people say, well, you could, in theory, just keep going back and you'll get yeah. like something that resembles a chimp or so, you know, something that just still is eating just ripe fruit all day. And before you could, in theory, go back to before we ate meat. Now, I believe that we ate meat and then that helped us become human. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's uh that nourishes, but I find it interesting picking these periods. I don't know what's right. I'm trying to figure it out. And I like to hear people's perspective of why they pick a certain period. So you do have a mental scaffolding of, of why you pick that period. And um, and it offers you a food that you seem to be fond of that seems to serve you well. These these beans, right? So um, again, soaked azuki beans. They're uh, right. So I'm trying to get something. You know, as a general rule, I'm looking for things that are low glycemic index, low anti nutrient, as low oxalic acid as I can get. Azuki beans do have oxalic acid. Oh, but they're low in. Their azukis are low in uh, oxalate. No, no, they do have oxalate. They do. So you can take oxalobacter as a bacteria and and deal with that. Um, So indeed, you know, meat plays a very uh, important role in in humanity. Um, It it definitely is an incredibly nutritious thing, right? Um, Where we're going in, in terms, when you're trying to pick a diet, there's two things you want, right? You want to one, feel good, but also it's good to have good blood work, right? So um, I have the equipment here to check my own blood. I can take a few drops of blood and run it through a lab analysis in my office, and I can see where I'm at. And you know, the last time I checked just a week ago, my uh, my lipid panel was so off the chart good. I mean, it was like Olympic levels. And I don't exercise to the degree that I could justify how good my blood was. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it's working. I can't say it will for you, but to the degree that we share some some basic genetic um, um, commonalities, it may. And so, what I would say is, you know, when you're hacking and trying to figure out what works for you, how do you feel? What's your blood sugar? What's your triglyceride? You know, what's your albumin? What are all your proper? Are, are your blood values looking good? You know, is your mind sharp? Is your is your body strong and limber? Are, do, you, do you need less sleep than you used you used to? So, you know, and figure that out. For me. Uh, late Paleolithic is where my sweet spot tends to be. Um, I also don't eat cooked meat. All the meat I eat is raw. Oh, that's uh, hardcore, man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One thing is, um, I so what I do is I have ground beef and ground chicken, and I freeze it at 35 below Celsius. And in doing so, I'm killing all the bacteria, you know, that... The, or mostly, I'm not even worried about the bacteria, really. It's because the parasites that would bother me more. Uh, and then I eat, and then I throw it out, and I eat that, you know, three, two to three meals a day. Hmm. Uh, now, 
The reason they I didn't, do that. They didn't do that in Paleolithic times, though. You couldn't freeze something. No, no, they were loaded with parasites, those poor guys. Gotcha. Right. Okay. But they were also eating an enormous amount of bitters. So, right, I mean, right. for instance, Hadza are loaded with parasites, but they may have acclimatized to the point where they're okay with it based on their immune system and based on their microbiome and based right. on their diet. So I am not interested in being loaded with parasites. So you eat raw beef and raw chicken and then a, a healthy dose of these adzukis, your favorite beans. Mm -hmm. and, then, and, then, uh, and then I'll do a low, I do a low glycemic grain. I'll do, uh, I do barley. Barley. How do you prepare the barley? Uh, so um, either, I'll, um, either I'll flake it and cook it uh, or I'll grind it into flour and you can either add it to soups or I'll, I'll grind it in a flour, mix it with some salt and water, and I'll uh, and I'll put it on a pan and I'll heat it over the cast iron stove if it's wintertime, and then you flip it and you make a cracker out of it. Hmm. Uh, now, the reason I'm eating my meats raw is twofold. One, I'm getting more uh, more uh, nutrition out of it. I'm not breaking down, you know, uh, some of the elements that would be broken down. You know, people go out and they want to buy exosomes and buy stem cells and buy peptides, well, they're all in the meat if you don't cook it, okay? Um, and the second is I tend to react poorly towards glutamate. Uh, you know, some people don't do well with MSG. Uh, I find that uh, I'm one of those people. And as I started lowering my glutamate levels, I found that the more I lowered them, the better I felt. And so I was looking at it and I'm like, where else can I lower it? And I, what I realized was when you cook meat, you liberate the, glut the glutamic acid in the meat in the same way that for, uh, you know, fermenting meats, fermenting things will do that too. But when you heat meat, you liberate the glutamic acid. And so now all that glutamate comes out at once. Now, the advantage to that is it tastes really good. Cooked meat tastes better, no doubt, right? Ground raw beef, you have to spice it. Mix in some oil and some, some spices to make it taste good. Other than that, it doesn't have much taste. It's like sushi. And I don't suggest just chewing on a raw piece of steak or chicken. It's much more palatable when you grind it up. In any case, what I found is that when I stopped, the, that I was actually getting glutamate from the cooked meat. And, and what's the I, problem with glutamate? What does that do? Isn't that, isn't that like a s stimulating uh, thing? Doesn't that stimulate um, like a neurotransmitter or something? It is a neurotransmitter. It's an, an ex, an ex, an ex, it is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Okay. It turns things on, right? Glutamate's the on switch along with calcium. Uh, and what I found was that um, my particular body was sensitive to glutamate and I would get too amped. I would get too edgy when I had glutamate. Uh, and so by eating the meat raw, the glutamate that I would get would be a slow burn. It would slowly come into my bloodstream because you do need some glutamate without spiking it. So you don't want to spike your blood sugar. You don't want to spike your glutamate. You don't want to spike your histamine. We can get to that in a second too. So for me, you know, the, the, less, uh, the more gradual the glutamate I had in my diet, the calmer and more grounded I felt. And that was a huge uh, jump up in my, um, in my health was getting the glutamate under control. That's great. I want to definitely get into histamine, but before I had one question about that. I, 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 so glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Doesn't, am I right in thinking that GABA is like the opposing force there? Indeed, is, it is. Is it possible, you think? I wonder, if, did you ever try having the cooked meat and then supporting the the GABA somehow, whether it was through 
um, you know, like supplements. I don't know if like uh, some of the amino acids that support that. Is, have, did you try that at all? Like balance that, balancing that sure. out? Sure. So GABA, if you have a healthy blood brain barrier, glutamate can get in, can, can, can light you up, but GABA won't cross it. So you can't, unless you've got a busted blood brain barrier, GABA is not going to make it across your blood brain barrier. What about so like the precursors to GABA or something? It well, doesn't the like precursor to GABA would be like GHB, the, you know, that old date rape drug. Oh, um, oh yeah. really? Yeah. Interesting. Doesn't right, I mean, um, glycine and taurine, I could be totally botching this. Um, like I know people take taurine to mm -hmm. chill out at night and help sleep. And I, I thought it had something to do with. It does. It will, it will activate the GABA receptors, but so now is where you start coming down to genetic individuality, my body. Okay. So I took GHB before it was known as a date rape drug. It was available <laughs> legally. And okay. I, uh, and I tried some in my twenties and I got the best night's sleep I ever had. Oh God. <laughs> I had a wonderful night's sleep. I woke up after five hours of sleep feeling like a million bucks. And I just, you know, I loved this stuff. It was great. And then I found I became addicted to it. Oh, and, okay. you know, and not everyone gets addicted to GABA, uh, to GHB, but some people do. And for those who do, it's worse than, I'm told, it's worse than heroin. And so uh, is that not available now? Like, well, that, I mean, everything is like available. Yeah, there, it's called Xyrem, and they make a drug out of it, it's by prescription. Oh, um, obviously, you know, um, lots of things are illegal that you can get. Uh, I'm okay. not suggesting people get GABA. Um, so let's move on. We, we've oh, veered hang on, but, let me, but, but hang on, let me, let me <laughs> okay. just finish the point. So okay. back when it was legal, I took it and I became addicted to it or I realized once when I, what I thought I'm, I don't want to take it today. My body was like, no, you must. I'm like, oh my God, that's, this is an addiction. It was two horrific weeks coming off of it. So my body, what that, the reason I'm mentioning this less is because what that taught me in retrospect was that I don't make enough GABA. And so that's why GHB was so wonderful for me, whereas for someone else it wouldn't be, because I'm finally getting high amounts of GHB in my brain and it felt wonderful. So I have a genetic flaw where I don't make enough GABA to balance out glutamate. So for me, balance means I can try to raise the GABA. It's very okay. difficult. I just need to lower the glutamates. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, that's great that you found something that works. Um, the histamine. So histamine kind of mm -hmm. hits me, uh, hits me hard because I could probably say that all the detoxification protocols that I have tinkered with really stem from me trying to fix something that is creating a histamine response. Mm. Okay. Um, let me tell you about histamine because I'm actually, um, I have a very dear friend who has, uh, trying to get her fixed was what created this. So uh, I had a friend who it turned out was had a mold toxicity issue. And as I'm studying mold, I realize it's histamines. And as I'm studying histamines, I'm realizing it's amines. So I'm going down the, down the rabbit hole. And so basically, uh, histamine react, histamine is a, a, a it's both, um, a neurotransmitter and a hormone. And most people know that it causes kind of like itching reactions, right? So in your skin, it makes you itch like a mosquito bite. It can also cause gut reactions. But what a lot of people don't realize is histamine can cause neurologic problems. There is a histamine receptor called the H3 receptor that's found in the central nervous system, which is your spinal cord in your brain. And people who have H3 receptor issues basically have an allergic brain. And this can happen to, to stuff that's airborne. 
right? So they might go to an allergist and they might, uh, or you get a blood test, but these things might be testing for the H1 and H2 receptors in the skin and the gut and the heart and not test for the H3 receptor. And so they're told that they're not having any problems when indeed they are. So what happens with, with histamine is, and especially if you've got the neurologic stuff, which is the H3 receptor, is um, airborne stuff will, can get you. And that's mold. Now, 70% of homes have mold. Uh, and, you know, you know, more than almost a third of people are allergic to mold. 80% of homes have dust mites and a third of people are allergic to dust mites. Mercaptan is in propane. So if you cook with propane, when the mercaptan gets burned, it turns into sulfur dioxide. Wait, can you so, say that again? So, I use propane sometimes. Well, right. So mercap. So you know that smell you get at the, when you, it's time to replace the propane tank? I assume that's the smell? smell of propane. That's right. Well, no, propane doesn't have a smell. So okay. that's mercaptan. That they put in mercaptan, and what that does is, if there's a leak, you'll smell it, right? Otherwise, you could have a propane leak and never know. So they stuck mercaptan in there. Okay. And when you, sorry, so when you burn, when you combust propane with the mercaptan, sulfur dioxide is created, and now you're getting um, a histamine reaction. And this is one of, one of the reasons, or the reason, why divorce happens more frequently in homes with propane stoves, because uh, the woman's cooking. And she's breathing, you know, women, I think, tend to be a little more reactive to um, propane than men do. So if she's cooking over the stove and, and breathing in that burnt mercaptan, she's having a histamine reaction and it's just making her brain go, uh, if she happens to be sensitive to it, which a lot of women are, then it's an allergic reaction to the brain and she could get irritable or, or just feel not, not feel good. So, you know, yes. It's so the burning of mercaptan creates sulfur dioxide? Yeah. And yeah. sulfur dioxide triggers, that's, histamine. triggers histamine. Yeah. Why does that trigger histamine? Is it just because it's like a foreign thing that we're not supposed to so have? So now we're, now we're talking about allergies, right? So hang on, there's two more and then I'll answer your question. Okay. You've got pollen, 26% of the population is diagnosed with pollen allergies every year. If 26% are diagnosed, that means more than half have it. And then you've got pollution like volatile or uh, VOCs and particulates and things like that. So uh, basically what goes on is somehow a person's immune system is cued in to, to be overly sensitive to these things, right? Now, granted, um, nitric oxide or sulfur dioxide or particulates aren't good for us, but a little bit shouldn't throw, shouldn't create a histamine reaction. Uh, enough of it should, because your body has to be like, hey, I, I have to deal with these toxins. But what happens in people who have reactions to them is they're overly sensitized. And what that means is their T cells have a memory that says, hey, when you see this in the body, this is a foreign invader, mount an immune reaction, right? So uh, the, a woman who reacts to propane, uh, basically her T cells have the memory of mer burnt mercaptan as a infection and then a immune response, a histamine is released. So what happens is you get histamine is turned into, so you have the dietary amino acid histidine, and then you have um, the uh, histamine decarboxylase, which is the enzyme that turns histidine into histamine. So now you've got histamine inside the mast cells and the basophils, two white blood cells. Then when they are triggered, they release by what the body thinks is an infection, but is really a dysfunctional immune uh, allergic response. They release the histamine, 
And then depending on the person's genetics, it'll interact with H1, when maybe they have a, an irritable skin, you know, their skin starts to go into hives, or H2, maybe their heart beats high, or maybe they get a lot of stomach acid production and they start, you know, getting um, acid reflux or something like that. Um, in some people, it'll activate H4, which is the um, the white blood, um, the stem cells and the, the bone marrow. Uh, and in a lot of people, it'll activate H3, which is a central nervous system. And the challenge less is when you activate, when you dysregulate someone's central nervous system, and if you go to a doctor and say, I'm having all of these, um, all these, experience, these experiences, you know, um, they might just think that you're neurotic because they don't see what's going on. But you know the kind of things that um, can you know can screw can screw up with that. Uh, you know you can end up with um, gosh problems with uh, menstrual cramps, brain fog, headaches, PMS. It's hard to wake up in the morning. ADHD. The body temperature goes wacky. You know, or it's hard to deal with when it's hot or cold. Vertigo and nausea. Sexual dysfunction in both men and women uh, can cause hypersensitivity in the nerves. So what might be you know, a woman might not be able to enjoy sex because when she's stimulated on parts of her body, the body doesn't recognize it as pleasure, recognize it as pain. It causes all sorts of stuff. And, you know, we have drugs for the H1 and H2 receptors. You know, you know about Benadryl and, you know, Claritin. We don't really have drugs for the H3 receptors. So what you well, want to do- Why is that? Is it just hard to, they haven't figured out how to make it? Um, I think the side effects are pretty brutal because now you're starting to, okay, so what H3 does is it, it releases- or controls the release of neurotransmitters in your brain, right? And so when the H, when your histamine in your body goes up, it activates the H3 receptor, which lowers the histamine in your brain, which lowers your neurotransmitters. It's a safety valve that says, hey, we don't want to go schizophrenic. We don't want to have our histamine reach such high levels in our brain that we go crazy, which you can do. So when the histamine reaches a certain level in the blood, the H3 receptors say, okay, back it off in the brain to take to balance off what's coming in in the blood does that make sense a little bit okay it's coming it's being it's rising up in the blood it's rising in the brain and the hc receptor says that's too much back it off but if the hc receptor gets inactively activated it backs off the neurotransmitters when they shouldn't be right so now we're losing access to things like acetylcholine for memory and learning or dopamine for movement and for for um, drive and for motivation, serotonin for happiness, norepinephrine for focus, and GABA for you know just being able to be relaxed and go to sleep and such. So they don't you know the H three receptor drugs. There's one out there, but you know the side effects of the thing can be kind of brutal because you're messing around with all the neurotransmitters of the brain. Now the H three receptor only lights up when your histamine is really high. So you don't have to knock histamine out completely. You just have to get it within somewhat normal levels, right? So here's, here's, here's my protocol for high histamine, especially in neurologic, although you could use it for anything, right? The first thing I want to do is I want to suppress the excessive tran transformation of histidine to histamine. That'll lower the level of histamine in general, but some histamine will still be created. So then I want to make it so that it doesn't... Um, it doesn't, it's, well, the first thing I want to do is I want to get the immune system to be reprogrammed so it stops seeing common things as an allergic response. So you have to manip, you have to get the T cells that have been poorly programmed to change, right? Then to the degree that that is not completely successful, you want to limit the production of histidine to histamine. 
to the degree that that's not completely successful, you want to stabilize the eosinophils and the mast cells so they don't release histamine. To the degree that's not successful, you want to uh, uh, give extra enzymes like uh, DAO uh, enzymes, diamine oxidase, to break down excessive histamine. Of course, you can't take it orally because then it just goes in the gut and we're trying to get in the bloodstream. So what I did is I created a product that would re-educate, that, that supports the body in re-educating the T cells so that the immune, just, uh, so that the allergic response gets properly configured, um, back off the production of histamine, back off the release of histamine and increase the DAO. We make it liposomal so it goes into the, so the DAO hits the bloodstream. And that's what um, a product we call, it's called Tessimate. That's what I'm using um, to support people who are having histamine issues, specifically, especially if it's like mold or neurologic histamine problems. So Although, how does that said, work? So you mentioned, dinner. I'm sorry, you mentioned a few steps there. How, what's, uh, what do you use to suppress the move from histidine, the, I guess the amino acid, which is the precursor, I guess. So mm -hmm. you said you suppress that from becoming histamine. Okay, right. So, so the first, the first thing you want to do is you want to re-educate the immune system, and I like rosmarinic acid for that. And why is that? What is that? I've never heard that. It's from it's found on rosemary and oregano and thyme and a few other things, and okay. the literature says that it will selectively uh, act, uh, generate apoptosis in the activated T cells that are dysfunctional. Apoptosis and again, this is another it's, reason. It's like self, that's like self destruction of a cell. Right, you're trying to get the the dysfunctional or poorly programmed T cells to um, take one for the team, right? And again, you know, this takes us back to why do I like essential oils and bitters? There's a lot of things that they do that I'm not aware of, and and here's one of them, right? <laughs> Rosemary. There's some wisdom in there, some somehow. Yeah. Right. Okay, so use that as rose. Rosmarinic acid. What else is in there? So I like green tea extract. Now, um, the green tea extract, the EGCG, uh, it suppresses uh, histamine uh, decar uh, decarboxylase, which is what uh, turns histidine into histamine. Uh, you don't want to do green tea because that has caffeine in it, and that will actually increase histamine. So you just want the extract part of it. Hmm. Caffeine sounds like the fun part of it. Okay. Well, for some people, caffeine is great because it stimulates cytochrome P450, right? So if you have someone that's toxic but has no histamine problems, well, caffeine's good, or, or depending on how you bring it into the body, right? Okay. Um, and then to suppress uh, the histamine release from the mast cells and basophils, um, I like quercetin personally. I have had success with that in the past, but I have to say, it took a lot. I, mean, I was taking a lot of quercetin to get mm -hmm. an effect. Now, this was like at my worst. I had a head to toe rash, like, mm -hmm. and um, like histamine was just running my life. And the the Benadryl, Claritins, that kind of stuff did nothing. And Western medicine had nothing but steroid for me. I mean, just no tools in the toolkit. And somebody had recommended quercetin, but it was like, I want to say I was taking six grams a day. So remember quercetin, like, uh, like the, uh, the DAO enzyme, um, is not bioavailable, right? So it's great if you're alert, if your histamine reaction was in your gut, quercetin was great. But if you were trying to get it into your bloodstream, 
That's why you had to take so much because you were only getting like two or 3% into your blood. Now we make it liposomally. So you're going to get most of it in your blood. So had you had an ultrasound machine and some phosphatidylcholine and the quercetin and you mixed a batch and made your own little liposome, you would have needed far less. Interesting. So speaking of things you make, I've been playing with a couple of the things you sent me. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the listeners, they are what I what you sent me were suppositories. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, not the typical administration as far as what hole it's going into, um, which is really not so bad once you do it the first time. Um, so I, I had a question. One, why do you do that? And why do you use that method? I assume there's a, a benefit to it. And also, is quercetin ever used that way? Is there a way to get it into the blood? Or is the, the main way you do it is by putting it inside of a liposome, which is essentially uh, what a glob of fat? It's like making it, putting it inside fat so that somehow that gets into your blood. Okay, so to answer your question. Too, too many questions there, probably. No, no, let me see if I can remember them all. Okay, so why do suppositories? Um, okay, so there are a number of ingredients that don't survive digestion that are typically done by IV. Uh, EDTA is one, glutathione is one, uh, serapeptase is one. Uh, and so when you do a suppository, there's no digestive enzymes in the rectum. So it's a way of getting something into the digestive system, into the, the gut, where it's not digest, where it doesn't get denatured by digestive enzymes and acids. And yes, we do have a, a suppository of quercetin, the endosterol, which we use with to support the prostate has quercetin in it. And why, uh, did, why and, does that? Why do you have quercetin for the prostate? What's the relationship there? Well, you know, when someone has um, prostate hypertrophy, there's just a lot of inflammation there. Okay, so it's right. just but inflammation the- is, is yeah, and inflammation is a, you know has histamine as part of that experience, as part right. of that. So one reason a person would do suppositories would be to bypass digestive destruction of the element without doing an IV. Another reason would be location. So for instance, if you're working on the prostate, where you're right there, or if you're trying to access the liver, well, uh, 30% of the, the blood flow there is uh, for the liver is right there at the, in the hemorrhoidal complex. So it's a straight shot into the liver if we're trying to do a liver detox. So that's why. So you, so it goes upstream from the rectum to the liver. There's like northbound uh, flow there. So a, a hemorrhoid, right, is a blood vessel in the rectum that, because of the back pressure in a clogged liver, kind of varicoses into the rectum. But in a healthy person, that vein is still there. It just hasn't varicosed. So there's a very rich blood supply in the rectum that goes right to the liver. Why is that? Why do we have a connection northbound there that's a great question i don't know right you know i suppose that we sat down you, at the you think of the rectum is a pretty much a an exit route uh-huh it, you know it may be it may be there as for a feedback mechanism to let the liver know what's going on at the distal end of the colon i don't know hmm. interesting now then the other thing you asked was um okay so you wanted to why would you do suppositories and then there was another question that you'd asked. It was about the quercetin. I think I think you already asked. Okay, right. So, uh, right, quercetin does wonderfully as a, a liposomal. Uh, so that's a way to get that in uh, at much less. Uh, you don't need to, you don't need to overwhelm it like six grams to get the effect if you're actually uh, getting it in appropriately. Funny side story on the quercetin. Um, so I was doing this experiment with high dose 
this is probably going to be too too much information, but um, I guess later I learned quercetin is a zinc ionophore. Ionophore. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, where zinc goes, it goes to some mm-hmm. extent. Well, certain fluids in our body are high in zinc, and quercetin has a color to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> I see you're going. Yeah. So okay. There is a period of time where I had kind of a almost like a fluorescent greenish yellow. Um, yeah. 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 Fluid coming yeah. from my body, and yeah. it was it was it was almost reason enough to not use it, but um, but it did work. Like I, the quercetin, once I got up to that dose, it really did have a noticeable effect. Took a couple of days, and it worked, but it was kind of a pain. It was like just a lot of large pills. Well, the other thing is, you know, that much quercetin is unnatural and can have negative effects. So, you know, it's the right amount at the, in the right in the right location. And I'm glad that it worked for you. Um, did you pay a small price? Um, you know, did you throw your liver off? Probably your liver had to process all of that. You know, it's probably a bit more than it appreciated for a little while. Yeah, so, maybe. I mean, so that's a polyphenol that has to be detoxed through one of those phase two pathways, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure which one we use for that, but it's got to take up some of the real estate there. Well, I mean, the other thing is even not so much a matter of detoxifying, but there's something called albumin in the bloodstream that is does two things. It brings nutri- moves nutrition and it moves toxins. And if you completely load yourself up with supplements so that your albumin is completely loaded with things that you might not need, it displaces its, the albumin's ability to do other things. So with supplements, more is not always better right? The, you have a limited capacity to move these things around, move the right things around. Right. Yeah, I've probably been guilty of that, just taking, trying too much. And, you know, when you're feeling really bad, it's like, I'll do it. You get that. I'll do anything. I have to do something mentality. Sure. Yeah. And as I get uh, wiser, and more experienced, I'm a little bit more, I'd say just a little bit more cautious about that and self-aware. I still make my mistakes still. Um, but yeah, sometimes I just don't give things enough time. So mm-hmm. I have been playing with a couple of things. So the two things that you sent me, I know Glidamins was one of them. And the other one, uh, I think it starts with an X, Xeno something. Xanaplex. That's the chemical phase one, phase two product. Yeah. And basically I have, you have me using one every three days. So every three days I do one and I alternate which one. I'm probably halfway through the protocol, a pack of each. Is that typically what people will need? Just like a pack of each and, and do one course and then you- or, Yeah, for most. I mean, um, a down and dirty way to see how your liver and gallbladder are doing. There's a couple of acupuncture points of the foot, um, liver three on the top of the foot. Um, for the liver and then there's a gallbladder point um, between the pinky bone and the one next to it and if you uh, basically um, kind of massage on the top of your foot between the on the right foot between the big toe and the pointer toe work upwards towards the top of the foot between the bones and kind of really firmly push in between those bones at different angles until you get to the top where the bones meet that's liver three if that's sensitive you know it might be time for a liver flush to clean out the liver it can be a little uncomfortable, but it shouldn't be like, ow, right? And then the same thing for the, on the right side of the foot and the right foot between the pinky toe and the toe next to it, moving up on the top of the foot between those two bones and tendons until those meet, that's the gallbladder meridian. And if that area there is really sensitive and gives you a zinger, that's a good sign 
Uh, that's an indicator, such as you might want to do something to support the gallbladder. You could look at vitamins for that one. Well, and, actually, both of them for both of them, realistically. And generally, if if somebody wanted to start supporting like detoxification in general better, do you think it's better to go the route of something like glitamins or Xenoplex first or more stimulating the bile production in the body's natural, like from the, like, do you go from the top down first or from the bottom up or? I, I don't think it really matters. You know, our basic detox is metacardium, that's metals, glitamins, that's liver, gallbladder, bile, and xenoplex is chemicals. And a different one every day. And, and that's sort of like the once a year flush for all, all the things you do. Um, if you wanted to add in, um, you know, the Xenop uh, the Zoibin, which is the uh, bitter and essential oils and the Panaceum, which is the, the oligosaccharides, you know, trying to recreate a paleo paleolithic lifestyle, that's cool too. There is one other thing that I do on a regular basis. And for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, I'll show it to you. Um, here is the device. Uh, and there's a little metal clip on the back and some ports. And basically, um, have you ever played around with grounding before? Les? I do. I, actually, we had Clint over on the podcast a couple of years yeah. back, the guy that wrote that book, yeah. uh, Earthing. So yeah, we do. Um, actually, we're affiliate for his products. Um, they're great. We have the grounding mat. And in general, like it just opened my eyes to get outside barefoot more. And that's become a pretty regular practice for me and my daughter does it too, where, um, just, you know, go out, go out in the backyard, um, and, and take it in. It's great. Yeah, I'm a, I, you know, I'm friends with Clint. Uh, he's a good man. He's I love his work. Man. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's because of him that I even know about grounding. So basically, um, you know, when I first started grounding, I was like, okay, this is nice, subtle. I don't know if I'm feeling anything different than just the niceness of being out in nature. Um, but I, I like the, the concept behind it. Um, but then I thought, well, um, maybe if some is good is more better now, often that's not the case, but sometimes it is. So let's find out. And I made a machine that would do much more, uh, do like up to 18,000 volts. Normally out of the earth, you get two to 300. And, um, I, I peed out, a, you know, I mean, the amount of crystals that came out of me was amazing. Um, my, really? per my peripheral neuropathy was 80% gone in two weeks. I have people passing worms in the toilet because worms really don't like electricity. Um, uh, you know, just all sorts of junk started coming out of me. And I did that for a couple of years. And um, and then I thought, okay, that's, I don't, I got to the point after three years, I didn't need that much power. You know, whatever crystals and junk, I, all right, so, all right, so the, way, the way crystals work is if a crystal reaches, crystals are always growing in size and the body has a limited capacity to keep them, to break them down depending on diet and age. Um, but if they cross the seven nanometer size, uh, then they reach a point where they're very hard to break down. Past seven nanometers, it's like a, it's almost, a, they become very, very insoluble. And then they start, they keep growing and growing and they crystallize and it could be arthritis or gout or gallstones or kidney stones or what have you. Now there's something called the piezoelectric effect. And what that says is if you squeeze uh, crystal, electricity comes out. That's those little click lighters where you, you, pull a little trigger and it makes a spark. That's piezoelectric. And it also goes in reverse. If you put electricity in, you vibrate a crystal. So if you squeeze a crystal, you get out electricity. You put electricity into the crystal, it vibrates. And I thought, well, you know, if I put enough electricity in, 
could I vibrate the crystals in my body down? Because we know that's how you can recover dead batteries as you hit them with voltage spikes. So um, that uh, an original device was uh, partially made because I wanted to see if I could break the crystals down to the sub seven nanometer size so that I could then urinate them out. And I believe we were getting really uh, great results because you know we could see the urine turning really cloudy uh, right afterwards. So uh, I did that. And then after about three years, I didn't need the, the really big unit, but I, I wanted to be grounded all the time. I wanted to, but I, the, the earth, it gives you about two to 300 volts at all times if your feet are on the ground. Very low amperage with two to 300 volts. And, you know, how often can you be grounded? You're not grounded when you're driving your car. That's why you get a static shock when you get out on a dry day. You know, when you're sleeping, you could sleep on, on a grounding pad like Clint Ober makes. That's great. Um, but what about the rest of the day when you're at your office or walking around? I wanted something where I could be grounded all the time. Um, are you familiar with what microcurrent does? Yeah, I had actually some microcurrent uh, treatments. They were really like subtle. Uh, mm -hmm. Lay down and woman put mm -hmm. some pads on me and set them to a certain frequency. Came back a half hour later, check on me. Right. So I get um, super relaxed from it, like go super deep, theta yes. wave relaxation. Yeah. The zone I like. So microcurrent, the original microcurrent is the earth. When you've got your feet on the ground, there's a very, even though it's two to 300 volts, there's a very a low level of current passing through up your feet and out your head. You know, and you could say that's part of the, the uprising energy going up to the spine and, you know, we could get into the esoteric aspects of that one day too. Um, but the, that we're meant to be in a state of constant healing and microcurrent is that constant healing. Now, you know, we... Don't unlike a camel, we can't store water, but, but we don't live in we don't typically don't live in a desert. So since humans are mostly around water, you know, um, rivers and streams, or have access to wells, or eat food that's juicy, we don't store water because we have access to it. And uh, if you don't get enough water, it's a problem pretty darn quick. Uh, we do have the ability to store calories uh, because we don't always have successful hunts. So, so that's what body fat is. Well, we don't have the ability to store electricity uh, because why would you just put your feet on the ground and you've always got electricity and the whole body runs, every uh, biochemical reaction in the body has to do with electrons moving somewhere. So we're meant to have a, like, for instance, antioxidants are all electrons. All antioxidants do is transport electrons. Well, the, so the smallest elect antioxidant is actually a single electron. So the earth is the original antioxidant um, and it's the original microcurrent device. I mean, anytime you got your feet on the earth, you are in a state of healing where microcurrent is moving. So I said, I want that. I want to be in that, but I sit, you know, I don't, the only time you catch me sitting is if I'm eating food, driving a car or doing a podcast. Other than that, I'm standing. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm in my office or I'm in a car. I can't put my feet on the ground. So I said, well, can I, the, the earth is only generating 300 volts at a, at a very low current. That's not that much. Couldn't I put that into a box? So that's that's what this is. This is oh, okay. planet in a box. Right? So that kicks out like the equivalent current or electrons that the Earth does. Yeah, this is um, somewhere between 50 and 300 um, volts, depending on how you set it. Okay. And if you put it in, in your pants, a pant seam like a, a pager, it comes out of this and it's constantly going into your side. Or what you can do is you can plug it in here and that I actually have going 
maybe you can see it. There's a wristwatch right there that I've hacked. And I have a cable going from that down to a unit and I am getting a microcurrent. So, um, so wait, if you don't use a watch, how do you attach that to your body? So either you kind of put this on your belt and this goes against your skin and it comes out here. That's one way to do it. Or you access it through the port on the top. If I'm looking in the corner, I'm just looking at What's the other end of that port, the part that you would need to touch? Oh. Okay, so um, like you what, can- what, what do you use on the right. end of the cord? Uh, so you can use any kind of ESD, electrostatic discharge wristband, or any, you can attach it to any, as long as the metal's contacting your body. So you could have it attached to a piece of jewelry, it doesn't matter. Um, I just, you know, took a, a watch uh, and I hacked it and, and ran it into the watch. Right. But uh, just because it's more comfortable to wear, but you can do it however you like. And so I am continuously getting, I, I'm grounded now as we speak. Even do you though feel I, that? Do you, is that like sub uh, perceptive or? Uh, not to me, but um, it, it, it is subtle and not everyone's going to pick it up, but I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Um, women notice these things more than men. They're more in tune. Uh, and the sicker you are, the more you'll feel it unless you spend a lot of time, you know, kind of paying attention to your body. But I'll, I'll tell you a, an interesting uh, story about it. So uh, I was with my partner. We went, went and visited um, her grandmother who, uh, and her aunt who had recently had a stroke who was bound to a wheelchair. And I had one of these units with me. And uh, you know, I thought to myself, wow, this girl hasn't been out of the wheelchair in years now. When was the last time she had her feet on the ground? Maybe grounding would be nice for her. I said, would you like to try this device and see what happens? She goes, sure. I said, okay. And I gave it to her. She put her hand on it. And about a minute later, she goes, oh, my vertigo's gone. I'm like, oh, I didn't know you had vertigo. Is it possible that it just gone because it comes and goes on its own? You know, she goes, nope, nope. When it comes, it's here for hours and it just turned right off. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. She goes, yeah. And so she's using it in about five minutes later, she takes her hand off the device and she gets, forgets about it. And I put it back in my pocket. And a few minutes later, she goes, the vertigo's back. I'm like, oh. Well, do you want to try the unit again? She goes, sure. I said, okay, well, do me a favor. If the vertigo goes away, tell me when. And so she puts her hand on it and I'm counting in my head. And when I get to 40, 40 seconds, she goes, oh, it's gone. I said, oh, that's great. And so conversation goes five minutes later, she forgets about it, takes her hand off. A few minutes later, the vertigo comes back. I said, oh, do you want to try it a third time? She goes, please. I said, okay, again, if it goes away, please tell me when. And right at 40 seconds, again, it turns off. So we turned, the vertigo turned off and on three times. Now, obviously most people are not gonna have such a dramatic experience, but she had a heavy brain injury. So for her, it was dramatic. Uh, for me, it's more just like, I feel like I breathe deeper. Um, my body feels more relaxed. Um, I feel a little bit more present. You know, that's what it feels like to me. But I, I do it not so much how I, because how I feel, although I, I do like how it feels, but also because I understand conceptually that I'm meant to be, we're all meant to be in a state of constant healing. And, you know, just breathing oxygen burns the body. You know, there's toxins in the environment. There's EMF coming from this. I mean, there's always, there's, there's all these things that are challenging from the body, but then there's this one thing the earth gives us, this gift of healing, and if you're not grounded, you're not getting that gift. And I wanted it continue. So, and I wanted others to have it. So I made the unit. That's cool. And what is that called? Uh, I call it the portable electron charger. I 
just like wasn't very um, inventive with the name that day. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd like to give that a try. Um, that's great. Spencer, is there any, we've, we've been going for a while now. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to leave. I'd like to leave with a note of hope. You know, um, there's a lot of people who uh, are out there who are, are chronically ill, and and are have, they've been that way for a long time. Maybe it's getting worse. Um, they've had, you know, they've gone to a lot of different doctors, and other than spending a small fortune, they haven't had much help. And what I want to say is, you know, don't give up hope. The body has an amazing capacity to heal. And, you know, uh, I'll, get, I'll give you a final example. There is a woman who called me up. She was like 75. And she called me to thank me for because her headache was gone. She took vitamins and she said her headache was gone. And I said, oh, ma'am, I'm, I'm very glad your headache went away. She goes, no, no, really. It was a bad headache for a long time. Thank you. I'm like, well, what's a long time? She goes, 40, 50 years. She had had a headache. She was like 16, nonstop. Uh, now, a trapped gallstone can cause headaches. So I think this woman might have had a trapped gallstone for 50 years and it finally went away. Now, granted, you know, it would have been nice if she had been pain-free much earlier, but at least she got to spend the last few years of her life out of pain. So what I'm saying is hopefully it doesn't take someone 50 years, but you know, don't give up hope. If you're if you're struggling with something, keep thinking, keep looking, keep experimenting. The body is amazing at healing. There's there's so many people out there working to try to figure out how the body works and how to make it work better. Uh, just have faith that uh, if you're in a if you're in a rough spot now, just have faith that you know healing is always possible. Yeah, I agree 100. percent And thanks for mentioning that uh, the body. There's some infinite wisdom, and we don't even understand it at all. But it is always moving towards homeostasis. Sometimes we just got to get out of the way and give it a little extra support. And it looks like you spent a lot of time on that, and you created some products that could be really helpful. Another tool in the toolkit for people to access. Uh, Spencer, I want to thank you for taking the time and chatting with us, giving us the 101 on detox and, and other things. I really appreciate it. And for the listeners out there, always grateful for your listening. And I hope you learned something today. And I hope everyone has a terrific day. Well, thanks again, everybody for listening. I do appreciate you tuning in. And like I said in the beginning, please don't take this as medical advice. But if you do feel like uh, you're having a tough time and you think it might be because something um, that you need to kind of cleanse your body of, I do recommend you reaching out to somebody that is skilled in that field and having some guidance in hopes to avoid some of the mistakes that I personally have made um, by just being a little too quick to try something. I currently am trying some of Spencer products. Uh, so far, so good. It's fairly early, so it's, it's a little early to say, but nothing bad yet. And um, I'm looking forward to see how it unfolds. Uh, thanks again. I hope you got some value out of this, and I hope you have a great day.